All right, let's pray together again. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, making yourself known to us, not leaving us to wonder who you are or what you are like. And so we pray now that you would help us uh, by your spirit to understand these verses that we read and to know how to apply them to our lives. Would you teach us and shape us and guide us this morning? We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hey, well, good morning once again. Welcome to FBC. We're so glad that you're here. My name is Matt, uh, the pastor here. And I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn with me in it to the book of Acts, chapter 5, uh, verse 27 is where we're going to be uh, picking up our study. Uh, it's great to be back with you. Again, we were out of town last week, but great to have Andre preaching for us last Sunday. And I'm so bummed I missed the end of VBS and the VBS wrap-up. Um, it sounds like it was such a special week, and I was just so encouraged uh, hearing from Darren and seeing the pictures and seeing all the things that God did here during the week. So I just want to say thank you again um, to, to you, to the volunteers. So many of you served to make that week happen. It truly was special, and no doubt God is going to use it. So uh, thank you. And uh, on we go. Hey, uh, we left off at the end of uh, verse 26 in Acts chapter 5. Uh, again, part of our time here in worship every Sunday is to, to turn to scripture, and we've been walking through the book of Acts little by little for months now, and we're here at the end of uh, chapter 5, and at this point, you know, if you've been following along with us, there, there's become some, uh, or you've noticed some repetition in the text, right? Uh, there's been this, this repeated theme of opposition that the church is facing, the, the apostles are, you know, threatened. They have been in and out of prison. They've been accused. Um, one commentary titled this section simply, Arrested Again. Um, another titled it simply, More Persecution. Um, more of the same. And that's helpful for us to see today, to read about how the early church, um, what they went through. Because it should kind of shape our expectations for discipleship. Like, well, what is this whole Jesus thing that we're getting ourselves into when we say yes to walking with him? Similarly, as we read through the book of Acts, it, it should be helpful because it holds a, a mirror up so that we consider our own hearts and our discipleship to Jesus and it makes us wonder, well, how would we respond if we were in a situation like the early church? For example, uh, you see our section this morning begins in verse 27 like this. It says, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin. Again, that's the highest court in the land. To be questioned by the high priest. And he says this, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. So notice what's going on here. The, the apostles, they're brought in again on trial before the council. And the high priest um, says to them, look, guys, we've already been over this. Okay. Uh, we already told you to stop talking about Jesus. Okay. Just, just knock it off. Um, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with this message about Jesus. 
So what gives? You know, what's the deal? We thought it was, it was quite clear. But the apostles boldly continued preaching about Jesus, right? They didn't stop. And so that holds a mirror up to us. It makes us wonder about our discipleship to Jesus. It makes us consider, man, what would we do in a situation like this? Would, would we be able to, to stand up under such pressure and scrutiny and opposition and stay faithful to Jesus? Because I don't know about you, but I mean, I, I get flustered when, when the food court line at Costco is too long. Um, and so how in the world did these disciples handle such an exponentially more difficult situation with threats to their lives and their families and so on? And so that's our question for the morning. I think the text answers is really what kind of disciples do we need to be in order to navigate opposition? And what kind of disciples do we need to be in order to navigate opposition? What kind of disciples can stay faithful under great pressure? I think the text answers that in a few ways. Now, the first answer is in Peter and the apostles' response right away in verse 29. Here's what they say right away. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. That's where they start, and it's really a pretty simple response, right? Hey, look, counsel, I know you told us not to talk about Jesus, uh, but God wants us to keep talking about Jesus, and so we're going to obey him rather than you. Pretty straightforward. And so the first answer to our question of the morning is, is we need to be disciples who obey God rather than men. Point number one, we need to be disciples who obey God rather than men. Now, for the apostles, realize this, this wasn't a new idea. It wasn't something that they just cooked up. Actually, foundational to their faith as Jews was the supreme authority of God. Right? If, if you were to, to read through the Old Testament, I mean, it's just unmistakable how the ancient writings of Scripture are this clear polemic against the so-called gods of the ancient world, like Baal, or Molech, or Marduk. Right? The Jews believed that the God of the Bible was the one true God. There was one sovereign creator of all things who, who stood alone and we are to worship him alone. And we are to obey him and his word and his authority above all others. And not only was his authority above all other so-called gods of the ancient world, but then naturally his authority was above all human authority. Above all kings and rulers and powers on earth. That's why God can, can show up in Exodus and boss around Pharaoh and tell him what to do. It's why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel said, um, no, King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, thank you very much, we're going to worship God even though you tell us not to. So you see, the disciples here in the first century are still convinced that the God of the universe uh, reigns in authority and power He's spoken. He's actually acted, he's acted decisively in human history. 
He's revealed himself most clearly and fully in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And so whatever the council says, if they tell them to stop talking about Jesus, they cannot. They're going to obey God instead. Many of you maybe have read the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Classic book, fantastic read. Uh, J.I. Packer is a fantastic author and theologian. And there he has a chapter where he unpacks uh, the people who know their God. And he describes what people are like when they really know God. And he gives this list of four things. He says, people who know their God have great energy for God, have great thoughts of God, show great boldness for God, and have great contentment in God. Now, the apostles display all four, no doubt. And each of these four could be its own sermon series, probably. But I reference this uh, to highlight point number two. J.A. Packer says, those who know their God have great thoughts of God. If we truly know God and have had an encounter with the God of heaven, we will have great thoughts of God. Meaning we will realize God is big and great and glorious and mighty and awesome and we will be humbled before him. We will realize that God is central to our life. There's no one like him. And he is good and he, he deserves all of my life and all of my devotion and, and all of my heart. So I will obey him as supreme authority in my life above and against all others. Right? It's like we just sang uh, in the Jesus is better song, right? Glory, glory. We have no other king but Jesus. That's our declaration. That's our pledge of allegiance as Christians, right? We have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all. He's it. And so that, that conviction to obey God rather than men is necessary for us as Christians today. Central to our faith remains this conviction that there is one true God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God. And we are to worship him and him alone. So we have this uh, core commitment, right? One of our... <laughs> There's normally a banner here <laughs> that has our four commitments on it. And... I guess one of the kids from VBS probably stole it, and he just <laughs> brought it home. I don't know. Um, but the first commitment, normally you just visualize it, it's there normally. It says worship, right? That's like, like square, step one for us is we are to, to worship, and, and some of the language we use about that is about a whole life devotion to God. Whole life devotion. God, you made me. God, um, I belong to you. I surrender my life and my will and my years, all of it to you. Now, likely you won't be on trial before the Sanhedrin uh, being told to keep quiet about Jesus. But, but we all need to consider, for every one of us, where we are tempted to obey human beings human laws or culture rather than God. It's a temptation for all of us. 
for some, there's great family pressure to not become a Christian, especially in other parts of the world. Following Jesus is outlawed, or at least there's extreme social pressure against conversion and following Jesus. If you follow Jesus in some societies, your family will kick you out, will disown you, maybe even threaten you with violence. And so there, men and women must be disciples who obey God rather than their parents or rather than their culture. For many of us today, there's great pressure to not talk about Jesus, whether it's at work, whether it's in your family, in your neighborhood, certain friendships, people just don't want to hear it. And there we must be disciples who obey God rather than men and find ways to be faithful witnesses and share the good news of Jesus in our world. For probably all of us, there's going to be great pressure, social pressure, to adopt the culture's views about any number of topics, whether it be money or comfort or sexuality and gender, you name it. Um, there's this pressure to abandon Scripture's teaching on it and instead embrace the culture's teaching on it. And so there, we must be disciples who obey God and His Word rather than men. And instead, we uphold the Word of God. And so you could fill in the blanks in your life, in your story, in your situation, uh, that you are called to be someone who obeys God rather than blank. And so really what this leads to is then this posture when, when we're looking at making decisions. As Christians, when we make decisions... And we have this filter that we run our, our decisions through. We need to ask, the, the first question we need to ask is, what does God say about this? Or what does God say about this in his word? Especially for young people. Young people in the house, and I still think I kind of count as that group, you know, so I can see, say, you know, millennials and under, especially for us. When we're making decisions... We got to think about first, what does God say about this? Not just, hey, what do I think about this? Or what feels good? Or what sounds right? Or will my friends approve? Or do I like this? But the first question is, what does God say? And, and we may not always know the answer to that right away. So maybe we have to figure it out. And we want to go to the Word or, or ask uh, parents or ask those who know Scripture who can say, well, actually, yeah, let's look at what Scripture says about this topic. Sometimes it takes some, some time to figure out what does God say about this. But still, that should be the question. Because here's the conviction of the apostles. Hey, I'm not in charge. Human beings aren't in charge. Uh, God's in charge. And so we want to obey Him. And re really, if you look at, you know, Genesis chapter 3, page 3 of the Bible, when, when sin enters the story, the original temptation and sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 is they basically want to be like God, and they want to write the rules for themselves. They want to determine for themselves what's good and evil, what's right and wrong. And so with all these pressures... And more, we need to decide ahead of time. No, we're going to be disciples who obey God rather than men. Come what may. I uh, remember Pastor Francis Chan talking about this one time, talking about how he tried to live this out, and he shared how when he gets up on a stage to preach 
and teach. And often he'll be at like a big conference or a big church because he's really um, well known. They'll have like in the back a countdown clock. You know, which tells them, like, hey, you have this many minutes, and it's going to be counting down, like, from 35 minutes or whatever. And when it gets to zero, that's like, we're gonna, you know, you need to stop. Like, land the plane, and, you know, on we go. And we don't, um, we don't have one of those here. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> if we did, it might help. We'd maybe have some shorter sermons. Sorry. But, um, but, but what he says is, hey, I imagine, he says, when I'm looking at that countdown clock, I imagine that when it hits zero, I'm going to stand before the Lord. And what if, when that clock hits zero, I'm going to die and be in the presence of God and give an account of my life and give an account of my preaching and teaching? He says, I want to I preach and teach in that moment with that moment in mind. And he says when he does that, it helps him to, to not be prone to, to alter what he says so that people like it better. Like, I'll hit this point a little harder because I know the crowd here probably appreciates that. Or this point will be a little softer because people would, uh, you know, approve of me more in that case. Um, he says, no, I, I need to obey God. And man, if I'm about to stand before him, I want to make sure that I say what he wants me to say. And I don't need to care about their, you know, people's approval or how they're going to respond to it. I need to be faithful to teach the word of God. I want to live with an audience of one. And so what if we similarly lived that way? Where we said, hey, at the end of this conversation, at the end of this work day, at the end of this family weekend, what if I were to die and stand before the Lord? Is there something I would have wanted to have said? Is there something I would have uh, wanted to not have said or not done? What do I think God would want me to do in this scenario? Because I'm going to stand before him and give an account of my life. I don't want to please him. So we need to be disciples who obey God rather than men. Actually, I have this verse um, printed out in my office. It's printed out and it's framed on my little mini fridge in the corner. Maybe if you've been in there, maybe you've seen it. It's kind of tucked away. But um, I, I have it printed out not because I've mastered it and because I'm like, look, I do this perfectly. No, I have it printed out because I need to remember it. Because every day I'm tempted to, to live for the approval of other people or the applause of other people or want to obey other people and their opinions rather than the Lord. I feel that temptation in my heart. So I need to remember, Lord, I want to obey you. And so be encouraged if you can relate. If you hear this and you're like, I don't think I do this very well, um, you're in good company. And together we can learn to be disciples who obey God rather than men. And think about even who's saying this. It's Peter. Right, our brother Peter, who, it's so encouraging. We talk about all the time how uh, he failed and he denied Christ in the Gospels. And yet he was restored and forgiven and filled with the Spirit and then boldly stood for Christ before the Sanhedrin. And so that could be your story too. Where you look back at your life, man, I've failed in this area. I haven't lived this out. I've been prone to fear. But going forward, Lord, I want to be a disciple who obeys you and not men. So that's, that's the first point. What kind of disciples do we need to be in order to navigate opposition? Disciples who obey God rather than men. But their response continues in verse 30. They say more, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. 
God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that we might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. So the second thing we see in their response is that that we need to be disciples who know the gospel. We need to be disciples who know the gospel. Because that's what we see the apostles doing here, is they talk about, hey, we're going to obey God, and then they, they clearly preach the gospel. These true events of what? Verse 30, Jesus was killed on a cross, but he was raised from the dead by God the Father. And now verse 31 says he's exalted, he's the Savior, and he offers forgiveness of sins. So the apostles, they know the gospel. They know the story and the message of Jesus. And there's a few ways they they unpack it. uh, You see the connection to the Old Testament, right, in verse 30. They start by saying, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus. Now, I point that out because most of us are probably more familiar with the New Testament than we are the Old Testament. And maybe for us, the Old Testament is like, a little murky or confusing or harder to read at times. But I just want you to see how central the Old Testament is to Christian faith. They're saying the God of our ancestors has done this. These, these first Christians saw that, that the God of the Old Testament has, has kept his word and his promises. And so they go back to the prophets and the writings and all these prophecies that pointed forward to Jesus And saying, he's kept his promises to his people. And he sent Jesus, the Son of God, as Messiah and Savior. So they realize the connection to the Old Testament. And then, as we often talk about, every year we talk about at Easter, uh, they point to the resurrection. And it all hinges upon the resurrection. That they were convinced that Jesus was alive. This wasn't just like some feel-good story they cooked up. Uh, It wasn't something they made up in a a basement somewhere. Um, They saw the risen Christ. They were eyewitnesses of these things. And not just, like, he, again, spiritually lived on. Like, his heart and love and message, like, floated out into the ether and just, like, is still, you know, around. Um, No, the doctrine of the resurrection is about bodily, physical resurrection. He was alive again, and showed himself to them. And see, if God raised this Jesus from the dead, it has massive implications for you and I. Pastor Tim Keller put it this way, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Isn't that good? If if, if Jesus stayed dead, then we can just, again, go home and start sleeping in more on Sundays and go on with our life the best we can. Um, If he stayed dead, there's no reason to follow him or worship him. But if he rose from the dead and he's alive now and ruling and reigning on his throne, then we have to acknowledge his authority, that he is who he says he is. And so the apostles, they knew the gospel. They were convinced of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as their message. 
If you're here and you're still like wondering, like, I don't know about that, you know, pastor, um, that's okay. There's, there's a book actually in the back under the TV in the lobby. There's a book about the resurrection. I think it's called, Is the Resurrection Believable? Um, those are free. We'd love to just send you home with one. It's short. You could read it this afternoon. And it helps unpack the, the real uh, evidence and reasoning behind believing that Jesus did rise from the dead. And so to see that the apostles knew the gospel and they were compelled by the gospel and not some political ideology or merely some horizontal human, you know, social action project. They're compelled and captivated by the person of Jesus and the good news of his life, death, and resurrection. And verse 31, what it says about repentance and forgiveness of sins in his name it's sadly ironic because the Sanhedrin and the officials were threatened by Jesus, right? They, they thought that the message of Jesus was a threat to them, but it's actually this invitation to blessing, to receive forgiveness in his name. Even now, the authorities who condemned Jesus could repent and receive God's grace and forgiveness in Christ. You know, it's, again, it's sadly easy to hang around church for a long time for the wrong reasons and to just mistake the mission of the church uh, as, hey, we just want to kind of like bring people in and, and socialize you into like our programs and, and our way of talking. And yeah, it'd be nice if you could give some money and we're going to hope you embrace some of these weird habits that we have. And um, it, it's easy to view the church, and some do, as just like this human organization, just like this social community thing. And certainly there are all kinds of benefits of, of community that we enjoy, but at the heart of it is that we want you to encounter the risen Jesus. Our church is centered on the gospel message that there is a real God in heaven, and he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross and rise again, and he's really alive now. And he really knows you, and he really invites you to come and find life in him, to repent and surrender your life to him and find forgiveness of sins, and now this new life, both now and forever. I mean, even look at how it describes this Jesus in verse 31. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior. He is savior and he's prince, it says. That's a word that maybe your translation uh, says he's leader. Uh, it's an really interesting word, not used super often, but it's sometimes translated prince or leader or, or hero. He's the one who has gone before, who has, is the author of it, who has made a way. And so Jesus is at the center of, of all of this. That's why we sing again, Jesus is better. So, what kind of disciples do we need to be to navigate opposition? Disciples who obey God rather than men. Disciples who know the gospel. There's one more, and we see it in verse 32. The apostles continue, hey, we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So there's that language again of, of being witnesses. And I feel like we've talked about this like almost every week, every other week in the book of Acts. We come back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I know Andre mentioned it last week, but it's this call where Jesus says, you'll be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and you, to his followers, will be my witnesses. Like, that's the, the job you've been given. That's the promise how I'm going to use you. 
That's our mission. So we need to be disciples who are committed to the mission. And we need to be disciples who are committed to the mission. It's our job to declare what Jesus has done and declare what we have seen and experienced in him. And so the apostles couldn't stop showing and telling others about Jesus because that was the mission. That's what Jesus told them to do, to make disciples to the end of the earth, to be his witnesses. And we see if you, <clears throat> you zoom down to the end of the chapter in verse 41 and 42, we see the same thing. After they are released, it says the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So now the council, they're going to be even more mad because they had this an, another heart to heart. Hey, stop talking about Jesus. And the apostles went out again and are like, hey, like, really, we're serious about it. We're going to keep doing what God tells us to do. And it says temple, house to house. They never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news. They're committed to the mission. And even verse 41, verse 41 is one of those like head scratching verses where you read it, it says they're rejoicing because they have been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. That's what you can say with me. What? <laughs> they're rejoicing because they face suffering and disgrace, and they have been threatened and even beaten, we're going to read about in a second. They're rejoicing because they encountered this for the name of Christ, essentially. I mean, does that make sense to you? Like, is your, if you ever, you know, get beaten by someone, which hopefully doesn't happen, but, you know, if you ever encounter violence um, or, or uh, name-calling or uh, opposition or ridicule or whatever, normally our response is not rejoicing. And yet they somehow were able to zoom out and see the mission and see the bigger picture. And somehow even in this, they were, were drawn even closer to Christ, enduring the same sort of opposition that he faced. See, if the mission is to be comfortable, then they failed. And if the mission is, you know, to get rich and, and pursue your dreams, then they failed. But if the mission is to be a witness for Jesus in the world and experience great joy and intimacy with him, then even suffering cannot get in the way of that. And there's this sense of intimacy with Christ that they're experiencing some of what Jesus experienced and somehow drawn even closer to him. So in all of this, they were to zoom out and, and see the bigger picture. That's why we have to keep the focus on the call to go. Again, if that banner was here... Um, the fourth commitment is to go. We're to, to go out and share good news, the good news, and, and show great love to our community. There's a mission God has given us to make disciples, to help people find and follow Jesus. We've got to keep that central and uh, realize, friends, there's, man, there's, there's a lot of pain in our world. And many of us know that personally. There's a lot of suffering 
in our world. And people need the hope of the gospel. We were talking this week at our, we had, on Friday we had a, a book club with the high schoolers. It was awesome. I was on the clock and, and getting paid to eat fried food and, and talk with high schoolers about Jesus. It was amazing. Um, and had a really good discussion. We have some amazing high school students here. And read the book, and the chapter was talking about, um, it was fascinating about all these secular research studies with Harvard or whoever else basically have, have confirmed that um, all these teachings in the Bible uh, actually are good for us. Like, we, it's basically like, hey, if we lived out these principles we find in Scripture, it, it in general leads to people being happier and healthier than if they had not. Things like, um, you know, following Jesus, embracing his ways on things like love and forgiveness and generosity and contentment and the importance of church community. Like, all these different things are confirmed by, by research. Like, those are, lead to people being, in general, happier and healthier than if they didn't uh, live that way. Not to say Christians don't still suffer depression and discouragement and all kinds of hard things, but in general, it was actually really encouraging to read about, like, wow, who'd have thought? You know, God knew what he's talking about in his word. It's really, really good. Um, but, but as we talked through it, it was like, man, again, we have a world that, that doesn't live this way. And so many people that don't walk with Jesus and experience his love, and walk in his ways, and that leads, it's not, it's not just like an us versus them thing, like they're wrong and we're right, it's really a, it should move us with compassion, to say like, wow, look at how broken our world is, and look at how much pain is out there in our, in our world, and look at how, how people are hurting, and look at how people are desperate for hope, and look at how people who, um, people just need love, and community, and people who have been hurt by those close to them, trust has been broken by those who are supposed to provide them care. I mean, just, it's just devastating when you look at the state of the world. And so Jesus gives us this mission to, to, to make him known, to make disciples, to help people experience him. Not just because it's like the right thing to do and it's true, which it is, but it's also because we have a God who loves his world and, and wants to bring people to him that they might experience the abundant life that can only be found in Christ. Now, you're probably noticing if you're studying the text closely that we skipped over a big chunk in the middle of our section. I'm going to read it really quickly, and we're going to end on that note. The council, again, they hear the speech from the apostles, and they have this like little deliberation session uh, between them. And, and this is what they say in verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. 
But if, it, but if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. It's a really fascinating little chunk of text here. The council hears this speech from the apostles, and they're so angry, they want to kill the apostles. They end up not killing them, they just beat them and let them go. Uh, but this rabbi kind of steps in, this Pharisee, uh, Gamaliel. Actually, Scripture tells us he was uh, one who taught the apostle Paul before he became a Christian. So Gamaliel, he was quite influential in the first century. And he says to the council, you see his reasoning, he's basically like, hey guys, we need to be careful here. And he references two different revolts with two different leaders in, the, in their day. They, they had a strong following, a rebellion of sorts, but then the leader was killed and it all died out. And his logic is this. If this Jesus thing is not of God, if it's of human origin, then like these other revolts and rebellions, these followers are going to disperse and this movement's going to die out and we got nothing to worry about. But if this is of God, if this Jesus thing really is of God, then we will not be able to stop it. And we might even be found opposing God himself. It's pretty sound logic, I'd say. I mean, sometimes movements that are not of God do grow quite dramatically. They don't always just die out on their own, right? We have plenty of examples of false religions today that are alive and well. But in general, he's right in verse 39 that, hey, if this is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. If this is of God, then no matter how much pressure we put on them, it's going to continue to grow Right? If Jesus stayed dead, his disciples would have stayed home and the movement would be over. But instead, what do we see? We look throughout history at the explosive growth of the church. And we see the name of Jesus preached. And we see disciples following Jesus all over the world today. It is a movement that was not stopped, that will not be stopped. And so we are encouraged, we should be encouraged by and reminded of this unstoppable force that is the church of the living God. Still growing today, transforming lives today. And it's that movement that you and I get to be a part of and find our part to play within it. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this bold example of the apostles. Would you make us disciples like them? May you help us as a church and as individuals just be committed to obeying you rather than human beings. Help us serve you and you alone. Father, we need your help to live this out. Would you help us know the gospel, knowing the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? And if there's anyone here in this room who has not put their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, who has not received Christ as king, 
who has not experienced the forgiveness of sins that comes only in his name, I pray that they would turn to you now and cry out to you. And Father, help us stay focused on the mission to go and share the gospel and make disciples in your name. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.